That said, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, and we will read God's Word together in Ruth chapter 1. If you're not familiar with your Bible, it's in the Old Testament, so you have uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you have Joshua, then Judges, then Ruth. Um, you've got to 1st or 2nd Samuel, 1st or 2nd Kings, you've gone too far. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let me pray. Father, we... We ask that you would help us to understand your word. You turn on the light so that we see the truth, that we love it, that we rejoice over it, repent before it. Father, we would learn well of your goodness in seeing this picture 
of your kindness, even in discipline. Father, we would see your kindness and rejoice. We turn to you and trust in you. That we would know that you're always at work for the good of your people and the glory of your name, even though we're not always sure how. But we trust you. Pray that we would be that kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered why God um, has brought you through suffering in life? And some of you may not have suffered much yet. Some of you may have suffered a lot. But have you ever wondered why God's bringing you through the suffering? Or searched for an answer to some suffering in your life and, and you really haven't found the answer? And then you hear something like Romans 8.28 being thrown around, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you go, that sounds great. God works all things, that means even my suffering, together, or maybe even especially my suffering, together for, for my good. But, but, but what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it look like that he does that? And that's really what we see in the first chapter of Ruth. And frankly, what we see through the whole story of this book, this book is what Romans 8.28 looks like. It's a story or a picture of God's goodness. See, in Romans 8.28, Paul is telling us something about God's providential work. God always is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul tells us something about God's providence. He's always working for our good. But he doesn't show us that. Whereas the book of Ruth shows us God doing this. God is doing something powerful for the benefit of Naomi and Ruth through their suffering. And more than that, he's doing something for every tribe and tongue and nation through them. Naomi and Ruth are two insignificant women who accomplished no heroic deeds, none, but who God used in a powerful way to save the whole world and in a way that they never knew about. So look with me at the first verse. I want to look at the setting of this. In the days when the judges ruled there, excuse me, days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. What, what are the days when the judges ruled? This is about 1050 to 1250 BC. Really, I should go the other way if I'm giving those dates. But it's about 3,000 years ago. That's the days. Bef- 1,000 years plus before Jesus came along. In those days, we're told, but it's not just a chronological marker. It's also grounding the reader. The narrator is telling us about a particular situation. These were the days when there was no king in the land. These were the days when Israel was often disobedient. These were the days when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Look back just one page in your Bible to the end of Judges. Judges chapter 21 These days in which there was not yet a king in Israel, but there were various men and women who were ruling over them throughout their time of sin and repentance and sin and repentance again and again through this book. But look how the book ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, the people were in disobedience to the Lord. In those days is the setting of the book of Ruth. 
And in those days, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, see what it says? The famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. What's interesting is that there's famine in the land, and then it says, and a man from Bethlehem. Do you know what the word Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Do you hear the irony right off? There's famine in the house of bread. There's nothing to eat in the land. See, God had promised the people, I'm sending you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. You won't have famine there as long as you trust me. But if you turn from me, if you look away from me and trust in yourselves, then I will judge you and you'll have famine. And that's what's happening. Because this is a period in which the people were disobeying the Lord and so there's famine in the land. And it goes on and it says that he went, that this man from this town in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. We're going to take a short trip there. We're going to go there and camp out. We're going to sojourn. We're going to live there for a while. This isn't a permanent situation for us. We're going to live there for a while. We're going to stay there for a while. Just till we get some food and just till we get back on our feet and then we'll return. We're not going to settle down there. See the story? And they're going to a pagan nation to do that. What's interesting is what were the Israelites told to do if God brings famine and judgment for their sin? They were told that you're supposed to repent. You're supposed to repent and turn back to the Lord and I will restore the blessings to the land. But they don't repent. Naomi, her husband, and her sons, they leave the land. They don't trust the Lord, they leave. They weren't supposed to take off to a pagan nation to seek help, but that's what they did. And what's particularly interesting is that there's a Hebrew verb here that you see. It says, he went, he and his wife and his two children, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That, that verb is in, in the Hebrew is the word that was also used throughout the Old Testament for repent. And that Hebrew verb is used over and over and over again in the book of Ruth, particularly in this chapter. It's used multiple times. And the problem is we translated English like they went, they went back, they returned. We have all these translations which are helpful, but which miss something that the narrator, the storyteller, is trying to scream out to us. Because when you're reading Hebrew, you see the word repent, 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 all the way through the chapter, and the narrator's screaming out to you, this is a story about repentance and conversion. So the story's about and he's using a literary device to scream that out again and again. And he's driving us to the fact that this short story in this first chapter is ultimately one of repentance and conversion. It's ultimately one of turning to the grace and mercy of God rather than running from him. And the narrator saying, look how God brought Naomi and Ruth to repentance and to conversion through these trials. And he gives us three scenes the narrator does of their conversion. Three scenes of their conversion that we're going to walk through, of their turning to God's grace and mercy. So let's look at the first scene together where they turn away from the Lord in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, that means pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, which means weakling and pining. It's sort of an insult. Anyway, but here we go. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in, Ju- in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. 
Remember, they were going to sojourn, but they remained there. Look what it goes on to say. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Notice how we see tragedy hit Naomi right at the beginning. See, if you're reading through these verses, you can just sort of read over them real quick. Well, there's famine in the land. They leave, and they go there, and her husband dies. And they just kind of, in an emotionally detached way, read right over the text and not notice what's happening. Here is a woman whose family is suffering in famine, and her husband says, let's leave the land. So they leave their family, they leave their land, they leave everything behind, coming out of famine, and they go to a new place. And when they get to the new place, her husband dies. You imagine the tragedy that's happening here already in Naomi's life. It's a tragic situation for Naomi, and I don't want to read past it too quickly. I want us to get a hold of this tragedy, because this death is tied very closely in the text to them moving to Moab. And when we see that, if, if we're paying attention, we're going to start to think, wait, God's judging them. And we might ask the question, why is God's judgment so strong that he would take out Elimelech just for going to another country looking for food? And we realize that forsaking God's people and God's presence and God's word is serious sin. And that they didn't repent and look to him, and they went their own way. But... Here's the important thing. If you only see God's judgment here, if that's all you see at this story, you aren't looking closely enough at the story because you need to see its whole context. And before I say more about that, let's look at how the tragic scene grows more tragic. Look at verse 4 and 5. These took Moabite women. That's her two sons. Took Moabite wives. The Jews were expressly forbidden from marrying women from pagan nations. Expressly forbidden from moving from their land to a pagan land. So the tragedy just continues to add up, and so does the sin. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. To add insult to injury, Naomi's sons or in a foreign land, and they forsake God's command, and they marry pagan women. And what I want you to notice is the author draws us to an interesting fact. He just sort of throws it in there. And they were there about 10 years. Remember, this was supposed to be a short sojourn, right? They were supposed to go there for a short time. And they ended up settling down for good. They moved in. They were staying there long term. They were intermarrying. Isn't, isn't it an interesting phenomenon? What happens when we decide not to trust the Lord's goodness and we go our own way, right? Naomi and her husband aren't trusting the Lord's goodness just for a short time. We're going our own way. We're following our own wisdom. We're not following what his word says. Just for a short time. And before they know it, they've moved in. They've intermarried. They've been there over a decade. See, rarely do you wake up one day and just decide, I'm going to bail on the Lord altogether today. I've been walking with him closely. It's over today. Really, generally what happens is you make one small concession to sin, right? One small concession which bears all kinds of bad fruit and which bears further poor decisions. In Naomi's case, they didn't trust the Lord. 
And as they planned to go their own way for a short time, next thing you know, they've settled down, they've moved in, their sin has taken over, they're now intermarrying with pagan women. That's how sin works, isn't it? I want you to think about this. You're a man who's stressed at work. You're stressed out at work. And your wife has just had children not too long ago, and you've got a few kids at home, and she's home, and she's overwhelmed with the kids, and she's not sort of paying attention to you the way she used to. She's not giving you the kind of attention and affection and accolades that you're used to getting. She's home changing diapers all day and taking care of the kids, and the things that she wants to talk to don't to do about don't interest you that much, but there's a really nice lady right next to you at work who does like to pay attention to you, does like to drop you compliments, and is interesting for you to talk to because she's got all kinds of things going on that interest you. And so she starts talking to you and you say, well, I feel kind of bad about this because I don't think this is very wise, but I'm going to keep the conversation going because I'm going to self-justify. This is okay. It's not bad. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's okay. And then she keeps talking to you and dropping you compliments, and eventually it builds until one day you're in a full-blown affair. That's how affairs happen. Or women, you're a woman who's at home with the kids, and you're not getting much attention from adults because you're with babies all day. And you're not feeling like your husband is really romancing you and complimenting you and treating you the way he used to, and you might even be a little bit bored conversationally and want some kind of encouragement emotionally. And so you get online. And a man you know from the past adds you as a friend on Facebook. And he starts talking to you and telling you, you look better than ever. Drops your little compliments here and there and you think, this is going in a bad direction, but, but it's going to be okay. I can justify this. I'm just being friendly. He's just being nice. Until eventually it degrades into an full-blown emotional affair online. Or young single people who really want to be married. You make the decision to hang out with the club at a club with your friends on a regular basis, and you make that decision because you're justifying to yourself that the reason I'm going there is just to hang out with my friends when really you know you're the kind of person who's tempted to date the wrong kind of people and that you're likely to meet the wrong kind of people there. But you keep going, and you keep hanging out. And when that guy walks up to you, ladies, and says, starts talking to you and being kind to you, you start going, oh, he's nice. Then he says, let's go on a date. And so you go on a date. How, that's harmless. We can just go out a couple times. And you go out a couple times, and it's harmless. Your friends go, I'm not sure if this is a good idea. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure if it is either, but it's harmless. And you get to know him, and then you start giving the benefit of the doubt about everything until one day you end up in my office looking at me saying, how in the world am I supposed to stay married to this unbelieving man? Or you're a parent who wants your kids to excel in sports because they love it. You just want what's best for your children. You want what's best for them. And then your kids' sports start to require Sunday games which means you regularly start missing church. And then their practices start encroaching on your small group time. And you make the decision that this will just be a short sojourn. Just be a short trip for just this period of life. But years later, you recognize you're disconnected from God's people. You haven't grown much in Christ. And you see your kids go off to college believing that God is a distant second 
to whatever else they deem important. And then you watch the fruit as your kids get married and have children and make the same bad decisions you made. And now you're growing in Christ and you're looking at your kids and you're going, what happened? Why don't they ever go to church? How come their lives are such a mess? I never wanted that for them. But they're following your example. See, your little decision to sojourn for just a short time into your sin led to all kinds of bad decisions that followed and bore all kinds of fruit that you hate. That's what happens, isn't it? Let's be realistic. We don't just wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to go commit obnoxious sin today. Okay? It just start making one bad decision after another. So you think we're taking a short sojourn away from the Lord and his wisdom. But bad decisions give birth to more bad decisions until we have a whole bushel of fruit that we despise. And I, I want to move on to what occurs next in Naomi's life because both of Naomi's sons die so that the woman is left without her husband or her two sons. Imagine the devastation of this woman's life. I mean, has she even reached the point, I'm wondering, after both of her sons have died, has she's reached the point where she just thinks to her, she can't even weep anymore. I'm wondering if she's reached that point. Don't even know what to do. I'm just without ability to even speak or cry or grieve because I am devastated by this. And see, what happens is you can jump to the conclusion that this is God's judgment for her sin. And if you did that, you would be oversimplifying this text as you legalistically look for cause and effect. Cause, they sinned. You and your family sinned, Naomi. Effect, God is making you pay for it. And the problem with that line of thinking is it misses God's larger providential work of goodness and grace. It misses the larger work. It oversimplifies everything to you do this bad thing, so God's going to punish you with suffering. As if God is up there saying, I just can't wait for the chance to hit you with my hammer. As if when he does bring discipline to our lives, it isn't for our good. I'm not saying that God doesn't judge. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about his people now. Not those who are not his people, his people. I'm saying he doesn't judge, he does. But he does it in a way to bring them back to himself for their good. And if you don't understand that, you're gonna miss the main thrust of scripture. You're gonna miss the main thrust of the story. You're gonna miss the main point of your life and the work that God is bringing about for your good and his glory. And we'll see that play out through the rest of this chapter in this book. So let's look at the next scene, the turning to the Lord. Rather than responding, and we'll start in verse 6 here, but I want you to notice this. Rather than responding with anger to the Lord's providence, which is what Naomi could do, right? She could shake her fist at God and demand an explanation. Rather than doing that, Naomi's actually moved to repentance. And there's an important development here because Naomi doesn't simply repent because she's been brought to the end of herself and devastated by hitting rock bottom. That isn't all that happens. So I want you to see that um, real quickly. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. And there's that word, return. It's the same word, repent. She's turning back. For, look at the next word, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went 
on the way to return to the land of Judah. There's two parts of this equation, okay? Naomi hits bankruptcy, utter and complete end of herself. That isn't where she repents. She repents when she hears that the Lord has brought bread or food to Israel. What's going on there? See, I think a lot of times we think that repentance is just, like if, if so-and-so hit rock bottom, they would turn to God then. If they just hit the bottom, then everything would turn around. It's, that's not the whole equation. Because a person hits rock bottom, but it's not until they see that the Lord is good when they're at rock bottom that they repent. It's not until they see his kindness. That's what Paul says in Romans 2, 4. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And what leads Naomi to repentance is that she sees that God has brought food back to Israel. And the word here is bread. That's the word. The bread is back in the house of bread. And that same idea is picked up in Luke chapter 15. What happens with the prodigal son? The prodigal son flees from, takes his inheritance, flees from his dad, wastes it in reckless living. Wastes it in reckless living. Hits rock bottom, and what does he do? He thinks to himself, there's bread. That's what he says. There's bread in my father's house. Hear what happens with him? It's not just that his father has something for him, because he knows he could go home and his father could say, get out of here. You're a jerk. But what does he know? There's bread in my father's house. And what underlies that? My father is good and will give me some. That's who my father is. And that's what happens with Naomi. The bread has come back. The father, Yahweh, the Lord, he's good. I can trust him. So she repents and turns back. And that provision comes to us fully in Jesus, who says of himself what? I am the bread of life. You see, God provides. He's good. Naomi just had a little picture of it. The prodigal son gives a little picture of it. But when Jesus comes, he's the fulfillment of those pictures. He's what they were all pointing to. He is God's provision for God's people. He is God's kindness to God's people. In his perfect life, in his sin-satisfying death on the cross, and in his resurrection from the dead, he's the bread of life. It's when we hit rock bottom and see God's kindness in Jesus, that's when we turn and repent. Naomi's looking forward to that promise. We're looking back on it. But God had prepared Naomi's heart through discipline to see his kindness and his goodness so that she was led to repentance. And if you've ever experienced the wilting and utterly painful hand of the Lord in discipline, then you understand how this bitter providence actually bears forth a fruit that's sweet. You learn to see God's kindness and to look for him, and he restores you, and you see his blessings more clearly than you ever saw them before. But I don't want you to be misled. Turning to the Lord as you recognize your bankruptcy and his goodness does not mean that suddenly all of life goes well for you. It's not what it means. Naomi doesn't think or pretend to think that when she goes back to Bethlehem, all of life will go well. Naomi isn't trusting in God's gifts. She's trusting in the Lord and his goodness. And we see that because Naomi expects life to be rough. And she warns her daughters-in-law that there's a cost to following him. Look at verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's, mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. In other words, go home, go back to your people, don't come with me, go to your parents' house, find yourself a husband, and let your husband take care of you. And she goes on, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will remain, we turn with you to your people. Both the sisters now, Orpah and both the daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are both saying, we'll go with you, Naomi. And she says, you haven't counted the cost yet, daughters-in-law. Look at verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? In other words, am I pregnant that I can bear children for you? So that when you have those children, they can grow up and you can marry them? Because do you understand if you go with me, you're going to be destitute? You're not going to have anything? You may never get married, never bear children. It's the worst condition a woman in that culture could imagine. Go. Turn back, my daughters, verse 12. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Too old. And if I should say I have hope, in other words, hope of having children, even I should, if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? In other words, are you going to wait until those, guys are, those children are grown? Of course you're not. You're going to be destitute for 18 years? 20 years, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi knew the Lord had dealt bitterly with her. She knew it. He had given her a road that was exceedingly difficult. And she's telling them, he may give the same to you. You better count the costs. And Naomi's not encouraging them to walk away from the Lord. Don't misunderstand. Naomi's pushing them to count the costs. And her equation is something like this. You have two choices. You can have the Lord plus nothing, except perhaps suffering. Or you can have everything, go get a husband, go have children, go get taken care of, minus the Lord. Those are your two options. And Naomi believes that God's grace is sufficient for her, but she isn't sure her daughters-in-law are at the same place. You know, Jesus tells us to count the cost as well, doesn't he? If you hope to follow me, know that you'll suffer. You'll experience pain and rejection. You'll have to put your own hopes and dreams to death, and you'll submit to my will. Jesus tells us that over and over again in various ways throughout the Gospels. But Naomi knows that while she may receive no reward this side of eternity, She has everything she could ever want with God. And you see, we can follow Jesus and we can give our very lives because what comes after is worth it. And we have all God's riches in Jesus. And Naomi's daughter-in-law make two very different decisions with this information. Look at what they say in verse 14 through 18. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. In other words, Orpah's saying, you're right. I want a man. I want children. I don't trust Yahweh. He's not worth it to me. I'm going back. But Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. And she, that being Naomi, said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. I want you to hear this for a second. What does God promise 
Abraham and his people in the Abrahamic covenant. What's, his, what's the central promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. Central promise. Goes throughout Scripture. When you get to Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, you hear it said that he is our God and we are his people. And Ruth takes that language of the covenant and she professes faith. She says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And she's converted. You understand what's happening to Ruth here? She's turning to the Lord. The narrator's being clear that we know that's what's happening to Ruth. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See, here's the question. Are you Orpah or are you Ruth? Are you the person who says, you know what? Jesus looks good. I like all the things that Jesus has to offer. I want all of those, but I am not going to flee from my gods. I'm going to hold on to my gods, whether that's safety or security or that's children or that's family, that's getting married or that's your, your career or whatever it is. I'm going to cling to my gods because that costs too much. You see, if I look to Jesus, even though I'm saved, forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the reward is mine, and I've done nothing to earn it. Even though that's true, when I look to him, I belong to him, and my life is no longer my own. I've been bought with a price, and my dreams no longer matter. Only his do. That cost seems pretty big. Cost seems pretty big. That may mean single people that I walk away from a potential boyfriend or girlfriend who might be great because I believe God has something for me, and they're not included in that. I don't know. But it's big. It's big to count that cost, isn't it? Or are you Ruth? Have you seen your need for the Lord? Recognize Jesus is your only hope of forgiveness. He's your only hope of eternal life. And you look to him because you know that he's better than everything else the world offers. So you're willing to walk away from everything because he's better than all of it. So you see, God may strip away all that you have. Hear that? I want you to hear that. You may not understand the magnitude of what I'm saying. God may do you the favor of stripping away everything that you have for your good and his glory. He may do that. You want to count? You better count that cost. You want to pay that? Yeah, the Lord saves you freely through his son. Forgiveness of sin costs you nothing. Jesus paid it all. But walking with Jesus is very costly this side of eternity because when you believe you're his, your life is no longer your own. And he'll do you the great favor do you hear this? He will do you the great favor of making you more like himself. And he will do you the great favor of working through you to bring about the salvation of other people. And you might say, how is that costly? I want to be more like the Lord, and I want to see other people saved through me. How does that cost me anything? Look at the third scene, and you'll see how it does. Verse 19. So the two of them, that's Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? In other words, Naomi's returned. Something's changed. And she has this pagan daughter-in-law with her who's now believing the Lord. It's caused a, a, town about, uh, a stir about town. You guys know what that's like, ladies. If you ever go to a beauty shop, you know what that's like. Someone comes, it just causes a stir, right? I'm not kidding. 
I find out about stuff in my family before I know it through people who connected through my mom's beauty shop. It's just the way it works, right? Anyway, you guys understand what I'm talking about. Whole town is stirred, and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. That means, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara. That word means bitter. And she doesn't mean here she's bitter. Did you hear the next part? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. See, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In other words, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, I've come back empty. Clearly, by going away full, she's not talking about the fact that she had lots of food because she's leaving a famine. So you might say she went away empty. What's she talking about? I went away with a husband and two sons, and I've come back without them, and what's the issue here? I went away with trust in myself, and I could see all of how I would be provided for because I had a husband and I had two sons. And I was trusting in them and not the Lord. And now I've come back empty. I've come back as a repentant woman with nothing who realizes she has everything in the Lord. Everything in him. I was bankrupt and I didn't know it. I had no real control in life and I didn't realize it. See, my trust was in all that I could see and it was a sham. And the Lord has taken it all away. All of it. Verse 22 So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, I don't want you to miss what the narrator's doing here. This chapter started with a famine, and it ends with a harvest, doesn't it? Do you see what's happening? There's something the narrator's doing. Naomi has suffered immensely, but now the harvest is coming. Now fruit is being born as a result of her suffering. And the narrator's pointing us forward to the rest of the story to see the fruit that's coming. Because the rest of the story is in the context of the harvest. This first chapter is in the context of famine and suffering. And the rest of it is in the context of the harvest, of God's blessing coming. See, God brought calamity in Naomi's life. He's brought her the end of herself so that life could be at work in Ruth. Did you guys hear that? And as we will see by the end of the book, so that life can be at work in all humanity. Paul says this of his ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, 11-12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you the equation the question we haven't really considered is this if you picked up this book and read it and you just had chapter one and it said of the title Ruth and you read chapter one you're thinking it's all about who Naomi why is this book called Ruth because God is using Naomi to bring Ruth to himself and more than Ruth As we will see, God is working through Ruth to bring about the salvation of his people in all nations. Do you hear that? That's why I said being made like Christ and being used for the salvation of others is costly. Because you may endure tremendous pain and suffering as God makes you more like his son and as God brings about the good of his people. But it's worth it. 
See, the problem is that your pain and suffering, the pain and suffering you experience, you may not always have a clue. You may never have a clue as to how this could possibly be for your good and the good of God's people. I can tell you this, we know for certain that Naomi had no clue how this story would end up. Here's what she did know. She knew that because of her suffering, Ruth was saved. Turn to the Lord. She knew that. She knew that because of her suffering, she was now turned to the Lord. But she had no idea, Naomi had no idea, that as a result of her suffering and pain, even as a result of her sin, that God was working to bring Ruth to faith because Ruth was going to give birth to a son who would be the grandfather of King David because Ruth was going to be a woman through whom the Messiah came. Hear that? Naomi had no idea that the loss of her husband, the loss of her two sons, the famine she went through, the sin she participated in, that when God redeemed all that, not only would he redeem it by saving her daughter-in-law and giving her a grandchild, but he would redeem all of that by bringing about the salvation of every tribe and tongue and nation through Jesus. No idea that was a story. See, God is weaving together a great and beautiful tapestry that we can only see little glimpses of, isn't he? And you might think, but I'm just some insignificant little person. How could God be using me and my suffering for his purposes? How could my suffering add up to anything for his kingdom? And I don't know. If you sat down with me, I'd tell you, I don't know. But I know this. Who were Naomi and Ruth? Who were they? Just some insignificant women you would never have heard of in that day and time. Women who did no heroic deeds. Hear that? Nothing. Heroic. But women whom God used to bring his son and to radically change the world. I've quoted a song to you before, and I'm going to quote it again by William Cooper. You guys may not be familiar with him or know why I use his song or why it moves me. It's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. William Cooper is an insignificant man who lived several hundred years ago. He was a man who was deeply, deeply disturbed. He had massive psychiatric disorders. Uh, He was in a mental hospital a good portion of his life off and on, attempted suicide several times, didn't do anything enormously heroic, didn't do anything that marks him down in history as someone that we would all look to and say, look at what amazing things this guy did. Had to wonder himself, had to wonder himself, why is God doing this to me? I know it's for my good and his glory, but I have no idea how. And in the midst of that, a man who most of us would probably look at with a little bit of, man, that guy's been in a mental hospital a lot. That man, three, four hundred years later, I'm standing in this church telling you about. Right? Because he wrote a song. A song that still benefits God's church to this day. William Cooper had no idea, no idea what God was providentially doing in his life. But we kind of do now, don't we? Because we know that God was using him to bless his people. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. 
the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would be a people who trust you for your goodness. You'd make us into a people who look to you in faith, who repent of trusting in ourselves, trying to take control of our own lives. Father, who, who recognize that we are weak and we don't always know what you're doing and why you're doing it, but that we know it's for your good. It's for our good, I mean, and your glory. It's for the good of your people. Father, I pray that we would trust in that, that your son would be magnified in our lives, that we would look to you and joy, knowing, knowing, Father, that you, you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.